Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Alena Palko, a co-convener of the study group, and today I will be talking to Professor Ulrich Schmidt at the University of St. Gallen about minorities, federalism and nation in Russia. Ulrich, uh, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of studies? Yes, I was born in 1965 and when I was a student at the University of Zurich, uh, perestroika began. And I Russia was all over the headlines and the demise of the Soviet Union happened soon after. And in a way, I sensed uh, that this is part of world history. And so I started to learn Russian because uh, I wanted to be part of it. I witnessed uh, the demise of the Soviet Union in the winter of 1990, 91 in Leningrad. And I could really sense how one state was falling apart and other, well, another state pushed into being. And it was quite interesting to see uh, that the Soviet Union as a multinational state in a way collapsed and the Russian Federation as another multinational uh, state emerged in uh, that time of, of, which was really a historical time uh, that ended one era and, and started another era. Russia has always been um, a multi-ethnic and multi-confessional state, as you already said. Uh, but in official discourse, however, Russia has been mostly associated with the Russian people only. Under the Romanos, um, the Russian Empire operated on the formula of official nationality, that is orthodoxy, autocracy and nationality. Does this triad remain applicable for Russia today? Um, what do you regard as key determinants of the modern Russian nation? Or to put it simply, what does it mean to be Russian today? Well, the triad of official nationality was indeed the key concept that held the Tsarist Empire uh, together. And it was something that was valid throughout uh, the 19th century until uh, the revolutions in the early 20th century. The Soviet Union uh, strove to create a new identity. Uh, the ideology basically wanted to create an attachment to the new Soviet state that was based not on a certain nation, uh, but on class. And of course, this was the class of workers and uh, peasants. In the 30s, uh, Stalin tried to create something uh, that he called Soviet patriotism. And Soviet patriotism was in fact something uh, that was uh, directed uh, towards uh, a social identification that the citizens of the uh, Soviet Union were supposed uh, to adhere to. However, uh, during uh, World War II, the Russian nation uh, came to the foreground again. One uh, famous instance is uh, Stalin's uh, toast uh, when he celebrated the Russian nation after the victory over Nazi Germany. And there he enumerated, well, all the heroic deeds um, 
by the Red Army, but he singled out the Russian nation that allegedly fought more bravely uh, than other nations within the Soviet Union. And here we can see how alive uh, this uh, notion of a, a Russian nation was even uh, in uh, the years of the Stalinist rule. After the demise of the Soviet Union, the Russian Federation faced a severe problem. And this problem was, of course, uh, that the Russian Federation could encounter the same fate as uh, the Soviet Union. It could obviously also fall apart. Separatism loomed large in the 19, 1990s. And uh, of course, the, the Chechen wars were only the most prominent and dramatic case in point. Putin uh, tried to fight uh, these separatist tendencies, and he introduced what he called the vertical of, of power, and he centralized uh, the political power uh, in the Russian Federation in uh, the, the center in, in Moscow, and basically uh, tried uh, to weaken uh, the federal uh, subjects. Now, uh, if we look back uh, into the recent past, one thing strikes me most. Russia could have chosen a way that Germany chose uh, after World War II. Uh, Germany uh, could not base its new state, the Federal German Republic, on a conception of a, of a German nation. That was impossible after the catastrophe of uh, the Nazi regime. So uh, the Germans uh, based their nation on something that they called constitutional patriotism. This is a concept uh, that has been uh, presented by Jürgen Habermas. And of course, uh, constitutional patriotism also could have been a viable option for the Russian uh, Federation. However, in 2000, when uh, Vladimir Putin became president of the Russian Federation, he did not uh, try to establish something like a constitutional patriotism in Russia, uh, but he promoted a new national uh, patriotism. And uh, in the very long years of his uh, presidency, uh, it also became increasingly clear that Russian culture was not just a bothersome position in the state budget, but that Russian culture could be used strategically. And one clear sign for this uh, growing importance of a Russian culture in the narrow sense of the word uh, is the fact uh, that it uh, well is present prominently in all the recent strategies of uh, Russian national security. And here, uh, culture plays a very prominent role and even occupies a whole section in uh, the strategy of uh, national security. Now for Putin, um, in his conception of the, the Russian federal nation, Russian language and culture should function as a kind of a magnet that holds the multicultural Russian Federation together and prevents it from, uh, from falling apart. And I think here um, we should remember uh, that the Russian Federation is a very heterogeneous uh, state. We do have 85 federal subjects in the Russian Federation, and uh, they rise, range considerably in size. So there are cities, from in, uh, there are cities uh, that have a federal significance, like, for instance, Moscow, Petersburg, and since 2014, also Sevastopol. We do have regions. And finally, we who have uh, entire republics uh, like Chechnya or Tatarstan. 
Moreover, uh, we do not only have uh, federal subjects, but also 145 nationalities uh, that are officially recognized in the Russian Federation. So we see this is basically a, a very heterogeneous state and it's not at all uh, or we cannot take it for granted uh, that this state just uh, well is being held together and if we look at the, the current uh, Russian constitution we also can see that the, the preamble uh, is takes pains to define what really holds uh, the state together, the Russian Federation. And uh, well, one wording uh, that really sticks out is uh, this uh, well formulation that says uh, that the Russian Federation is being held uh, together by its common historical destiny. And this is, of course, uh, not a very uh, strong bond uh, to hold the state together. And apparently this also became clear to the Russian president. In uh, 2016, pro Putin proposed to the Duma to draft a law on what he called the Russian federal nation in uh, a comprehensive sense of the word. So this multicultural Russian federal nation should be constructed around the inner kernel of uh, Russian culture, history, and language. So the, the Russian parliament uh, tried to, to work on this project of this law on, on a Russian federal nation, but nothing came of it. Uh, and most importantly, uh, because non-Russian republics like Tatarstan or uh, Dagestan uh, protested against uh, the Russian cultural dominance. So if we go back uh, to the old Tsarist formula of orthodoxy, autocracy and nationality, I think we can see that this triad needs to be reformulated. Orthodoxy. I think orthodoxy is still important, especially if we see how uh, Patriarch uh, Kirill uh, entirely supports uh, Russia's uh, recent aggression in Ukraine. But at the same time, uh, I think there is a broader notion of religion in uh, the Russian Federation. So, for instance, uh, Vladimir uh, Putin um, kept repeating back in 2015, when uh, Europe was uh, busy uh, managing uh, the migration crisis, that uh, the, the Western Europeans did not, didn't have an idea how to cope with uh, Muslims in their states. And he said at the same time that Russia as a state already had a century old tradition of integrating Muslims into uh, their state. And of course, uh, well, uh, to the uh, conquest of uh, Tatarstan, for instance, or uh, also to uh, the expansion uh, to the Northern uh, Caucasus. Autocracy. Um, I think uh, this unfortunately became a very, a, a very timely issue. Uh, in February 22, Russia has turned uh, into an open police dictatorship, which of course, in fact, is a kind of an autocracy. And uh, I think autocracy in that sense uh, cannot be a pillar of the Russian Federation for the future, uh, because I think uh, Putin, until uh, the aggression in Ukraine, uh, was something like uh, the person who guaranteed uh, the stability of the Russian system. And now he is, uh, well, seen as a liability also uh, basically in uh, the elite around him in the Kremlin. And it is uh, very unclear what will happen 
uh, to this uh, very dominant position of the president, uh, Vladimir Putin, in the, the, the power system in Russia. And finally, nationality. It, there is always a problem uh, with the translation of this term. In Russian, the word is narodnost, and uh, this main means basically uh, that political power has to be rooted in the population. Uh, it has to basically also have uh, the approval of every citizen. And of course, uh, when uh, this formula was uh, brought forward in 1833, uh, there could not be any um, democracy behind this uh, notion. And I think uh, we can see a similar situation today. Putin introduced uh, to Russia something uh, that he called a managed uh, democracy. So uh, the people in the Kremlin, the political engineers, tried to influence people to plant values and ideologies into uh, the mind of every citizen. And uh, I think uh, this proved to be um, quite a success. And if we look now at, well, the, the general uh, mood uh, in the Russian population when it comes uh, to the, the, the invasion in Ukraine, we can see a widespread support for the so-called military operation in Ukraine and nationality, um, well, has transformed into something uh, that uh, the Nobel Prize winner um, Svetlana Alexievich has called the collective Putin. So uh, everybody basically has a small uh, Putin residing in his mind. And uh, I think from uh, Vladimir Putin's side, he, he likes to see himself as uh, the embodiment uh, of the political will of the Russian people. And in this sense, I would say uh, orthodoxy, autocracy and nationality, well, needs to be modernized, but in a sense, it's still there. Thank you. Um, I'd like to expand a little bit on, on the Soviet past that, that you brushed over uh, already. Um, there is an ongoing scholarly debate on whether the Soviet Union was an empire, a federation, or a unitary state. In 1993, uh, for instance, Ronald Sani um, suggested that the Soviet Union was still an empire, but one that had fostered nations, and in so doing had brought about its own demise. What is your position um, in this regard? How far was the Soviet Union an empire? Yes, I think uh, that's um, an interesting and important question. In a way, I think we should stress not only uh, the caesura of the year of 1917 uh, that was marked uh, by the revolutions, but at the same time, there are also a lot of continuities. And I completely agree uh, that the Soviet Union was an empire and it was also designed uh, to be and uh, to become a, an empire. Um, I think uh, we can clearly also say uh, that the Soviet Union in a way functioned as a kind of a nationalizing empire, an empire uh, that brought about new nations and tried to uh, embed them in a Soviet imperial uh, context. Um, Historically, it's quite interesting uh, that Lenin uh, chose the form of a federation uh, for the Soviet Union, because a federation, of course, presupposes uh, the existence of several nations uh, that need to have a certain autonomy. And uh, this is also something uh, that has been uh, taken up by Vladimir Putin um, in many of his uh, historical articles. He um, criticized uh, Lenin uh, for introducing federalism into uh, the Soviet Union. 
and Putin said that this was basically uh, the beginning of uh, the process uh, that we witnessed in 1991 when uh, the Soviet Union fell apart and precisely along uh, the established borders uh, within uh, the Soviet uh, Federation. Um, the Soviet Union wanted to be in many ways the opposite of the Tsarist empires. And uh, I think this is also why uh, the Soviet Union uh, strived to be not a prison of the peoples, uh, just as they said uh, the, the Tsarist empires was. And uh, in the 1920s, there was quite a progressive um, stance uh, towards uh, the Soviet nations. Um, but I think Ukraine is an interesting uh, case in point. Uh, there were staunch Ukrainian Bolsheviks who fully supported uh, the project of a Soviet Union, but at the same time, they insisted that uh, a Ukrainian uh, national Bolshevism should be possible and uh, they worked for it. And in the 1930s, um, this project of a Ukrainian Bolshevism came to a tragic end. Its leaders either committed suicide or perished in the Stalinist uh, terror. And in a way, uh, this also uh, continued well um, into the 20th century. I think a case in point here is the Ukrainian party secretary, Volodymyr Shcherbitsky. Um, he, uh, well, being uh, himself a Ukrainian, he stood for um, Russification and uh, for Stalinist methods of governance well into Gorbachev's perestroika. And in a way, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say uh, that uh, Soviet Ukraine uh, basically was, uh, was more conservative uh, than uh, the, the, the Russian uh, Soviet uh, Republic uh, that basically um, ventured into this process of uh, perestroika and, and glasnost. Uh, another case in point is, is for instance, Kyrgyzstan in the 90s. Uh, there was uh, this uh, acclaimed writer, Chinggis Aitmatov, who um, commented also on uh, the Russian influence in his native Kyrgyzstan. And he basically said, well, the, the, the Russians uh, in the Soviet Union were not occupants. Uh, they, they were basically um, benign colonialists. Uh, from uh, Aitmatov's uh, point of view, Russian uh, culture uh, connected uh, an underdeveloped Kyrgyzstan uh, to, to world literature and science. And uh, basically, he tried uh, to, to put forward uh, a notion of, of, a, of a good influence of, of uh, Russian culture to, to this very uh, young national project uh, of, of Kyrgyzstan. And, and as a follow-up to the previous question, um, what was the role of central Soviet government in constructing national identities within Russia and the wider Soviet Union? There is a central, uh, certain consensus among scholars in the West, according to which Soviet leadership during the interval period deliberately fostered national identification and thus constructed separate nations. At the same time, as you mentioned already, um, after the Second World War, the Soviet Union pushed for accelerated Russification uh, across Soviet space. When considering more recent developments in those post-Soviet republics, including most recently in Ukraine, when national leaders have sought to uh, defy their past uh, ties with Russia, how successful can we say those earlier Soviet strategy, strategies actually were? Well, I think it's, it's good to remind us uh, about Lenin's theory of nationalism. Uh, Lenin said uh, that there is uh, a good 
small nationalism and the bad big nationalism. Uh, when he talked about uh, the bad big nationalism, he obviously had in mind Russia. Russia, uh, in Lenin's view, uh, was an oppressor nation. And um, when he um, constructed his Soviet project, he wanted to win over uh, the small nations for his Bolshevik project. And this is why he insisted on the so-called good small nationalisms. He wanted to uh, foster small uh, nations and uh, he wanted to demonstrate to them uh, that life under Soviet rule was uh, much better for small nations uh, than it was under uh, the czarist uh, rule. Uh, Lenin uh, was a great tactic. He knew exactly uh, that ideology was ideology, uh, but uh, that in order uh, for his uh, revolutionary project uh, to succeed, he had basically to satisfy elementary needs in uh, the territories uh, that he wanted to control. So he knew exactly uh, that he had uh, to win over um, the, the, the population on the territory of the former Tsarist empire with um, not only a social agenda, but also a national um, agenda. And this is something uh, we could observe already directly after the October Revolution. So one of the very first decrees uh, by Lenin was uh, the distribution of land to the peasants. Now this uh, was, uh, of course, uh, something that was hugely popular with the peasants, but at the same, same time, it was completely un-Marxist. Well, how could you give peasants uh, private ownership uh, over uh, a certain uh, territory? So, um, and this is something that is a kind of, of a leitmotif of uh, Lenin's management of the revolution. He uh, sacrificed the Marxist ideology on the altar of uh, political um, success. So the Soviet uh, strategies always navigated between ideological claims on the one hand side and societal realities on the other side. So the, ideolo uh, the ideology uh, basically claimed that nationalism would eventually wither away and, and literary, uh, literally uh, die out. On the other hand, uh, of course, uh, a national identification uh, continued uh, to exist throughout uh, the Soviet period. And uh, well, when we look at what happened in the years of 1990s and 91, um, we can see how uh, alive these national projects were. In uh, 1990 uh, and 91, one declaration of independence within the Soviet Union chased another. Uh, national identifications loomed large and uh, new states emerged. Now, if we uh, ask ourselves um, how successful were these uh, Soviet strategies? I think in, on the one hand side, uh, we can see that uh, there was a certain pride in, uh, well, what was called the friendship of nations. So there was a friendship of nations within the Soviet Union, but also in a broader uh, global sense. And uh, if you visit uh, today Moscow, you can still uh, see the exhibition of achievements of national economy. Uh, with the pavilions and each uh, Soviet Republic had its own um, pavilion. And there were, of course, uh, cultural and national specifics to each uh, Soviet Republic. And uh, this was something uh, that was uh, supported during uh, the Soviet era. But of course, the ideological claim what, what was that uh, eventually uh, the, the, the Soviet um, class ideology would dominate over uh, the nation. 
Um, in fact, during the Soviet times, Russian culture became uh, the, the, the dominant uh, culture, be it in terms of, of literature, be it, be it in terms of uh, cultural artifacts, be it in, in terms of science. But uh, at the same time, we can clearly say that uh, in the years of uh, 1990 and 91, uh, the Soviet strategies to cope with national ambitions clearly failed uh, because uh, the Soviet project did not take the emerging uh, national projects seriously and was basically blindfolded by ideological expectations uh, that, that nations would eventually become unimportant and uh, well, be and, and, and would uh, dissolve within uh, the greater uh, economic project of, of the Soviet Union. The Russian Federation is officially a successor state of the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, Russia's dealing with its Soviet past is not straightforward, as demonstrated, for example, during the commemoration surrounding the centenary of the Bolshevik October Revolution in 2017. In terms of ideology, which era do you believe has more impact on shaping uh, contemporary Russia, the imperial or Soviet one? I think uh, I would like to rephrase the question and, and I would rephrase it in, in such a way, which part of the Tsarist empire uh, and which part of the Soviet Union had an impact uh, on contemporary Russia. And uh, I think here, um, especially if we uh, talk about Putinist Russia, the notion of empire is very important. So basically, uh, the Russian Empire uh, was very uh, important. Um, Putin's favorite czar is Alexander III, who uh, well reigned with an iron fist uh, in domestic politics, but at the same time also um, had uh, or advocated a similar uh, isolationist tendency in international uh, politics. He famously said uh, that Russia has only two uh, allies, uh, the Navy and the army. And this is something uh, that uh, Putin also uh, likes to, to repeat. At the same time, the Soviet Union uh, is seen in contemporary Russia uh, not so much as a, as a huge economic uh, experiment. Communism as a societal order is dead and has been dead uh, already for uh, the last 25 years. Uh, Putin wrote in 1999 an article uh, with the title uh, Russia at the turn of the millennium. And there he clearly already stated uh, that uh, communism as an economic model for the Russian society was a dead end. Um, but still, of course, he uh, looked favorably on the Soviet Union, uh, but basically on its um, essence as an empire. So um, the Soviet empire, if we may say so, is a, a very important point of departure for the political discourse in contemporary uh, Russia. Uh, the second aspect is uh, Russia as a superpower or Soviet, the Soviet Union as a superpower. Um, and here, of course, we can point to the first half of the 19th century when Russia was the dominating uh, power in uh, continental Europe. We should not forget uh, that in uh, 1814, uh, the Russians uh, occupied Paris. And uh, this was something uh, that, of course, contributed uh, to the national pride in Russia. And uh, only uh, with the war in Crimea, uh, 
from 1853 to 1855, uh, Russia lost its uh, dominating position in Europe. And the same basically can be said about the Cold War in the 20th century, when the Soviet Union was one of the superpowers, one of the two superpowers. And uh, this, of course, is, is also uh, some kind of a an important element for a historical nostalgia uh, that is expressed uh, by Putin. Um, maybe if we look at the past, I think we could point out that the, the tragedy of the Russian people lies in the fact that the Russians never really had a state project on their own. They always had to share it with other nationalities. And I think this is a very important point. It holds true for the Tsarist Empire. It holds true for the state, uh, for the for the Soviet Union, and it holds also true uh, for the Russian Federation. And this is also why uh, the uh, imperial uh, dimension of the current state. Um, is also present in ideological discourses in uh, conservative institution in, in the last few years. Uh, so I remember one uh, conservative uh, political thinker who said the following, he said, well, uh, political goals like the welfare of the uh, people, uh, the, the guarantee of, of pensions for uh, old people, or peace. This is something for weak nations, like, for instance, uh, the Netherlands or Estonia. This is uh, too little for Russia. Russia needs a historical mission. And of course, these, uh, this uh, historical mission draws upon uh, the great past uh, that well goes back to the Russian Tsarist Empire and uh, the Soviet Empire. Thank you. Um, moving now a little bit uh, closer to the uh, most recent event, events, um, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about the uh, speech uh, of 21st of February 2022 that preceded Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In this speech, President Putin essentially denied Ukraine's statehood. He claimed that Ukraine is not a real country, but a historical part of Russia. In addition, Nowadays, we can see frequent references to the need to solve a Ukrainian question. How shall we understand this propagandistic formulation that invites clear parallels to the Nazi final solution? Overall, when stating that Ukraine is not a real country, does Putin also reject the, st the status of the Ukrainians as a separate nation? Putin clearly um, advocates a very anachronistic notion of Ukraine. He never really accepted uh, the statehood of Ukraine that was established after 1991. He doesn't see uh, the Ukrainians as one nation. He doesn't see the Ukrainians as one uh, people. Um, in the summer 21, he published uh, this article about uh, the alleged uh, historical unity of the Ukrainians and Russians. And I think it's fair to say uh, that Putin basically is stuck in the 19th century and he sees Ukraine as little Russia as an integral part of Russia that needs to be returned into the, the Russian imperial uh, project. Uh, in this article on the historical unity of uh, Russia and Ukraine, Putin used a religious metaphor. He talked about the trinity of Russia Ukraine and Belarus. And just as in the Christian religion, God is on the one hand side one, and on the other hand side, uh, well, appears under three different uh, images. Uh, Russia and Ukraine and Belarus also are, in Putin's view, one um, unity that, well, can be 
uh, also understood as a trinity. Putin also ventures far back uh, into history. One of his uh, most famous and uh, favorite talking points is uh, the alleged 1000 year old history of uh, Russian statehood. And here he goes basically uh, back to the Kievan Rus. And uh, for him, it is clear that Rus is a predecessor of Russia. And here he clearly projects contemporary notions of a Russian state back uh, to a medieval feudal uh, system of uh, allegiances uh, between princes and uh, subjects. Um, I think this is also clearly a historical uh, construction which he uses uh, for his uh, political purposes. This is uh, clearly propaganda within his uh, own uh, politics of, of history. And here we can also say, see why um, the events of 1991 are so traumatic uh, from Putin's point of view. If you take away Ukraine from what Putin calls uh, the historical Russia, you don't only take away a territory, but you also take away this uh, alleged 1,000-year-old history of Russian statehood. And uh, this is something uh, that uh, Putin cannot accept. So if we look at the ultimate goal of what Putin is, uh, is now trying to do, he is uh, trying uh, to collect the Russian territories that have been scattered by the geopolitical catastrophe of 1991. And um, in, in a way, I think uh, this is also some kind of a messianistic vision uh, that Putin envisages for himself. And this is also um, the explanation why he does not need uh, the approval of his government. He does not need the approval of the Russian people uh, because he basically accomplishes a historical mission uh, that is way bigger uh, than all uh, the political considerations or even the, the economic uh, consideration uh, that uh, could hinder uh, such, a, such a huge project as the reunification of, of Russia and Ukraine. Another frequent reference today is the term Ruski Mir or the Russian world. It can be associated with the Ruski Mir Foundation established in 2007 for the purpose of, I quote, promoting the Russian language as Russia's national heritage and a significant aspect of Russian and world culture and supporting Russian language teaching programs abroad, end of quote. At the same time, this concept goes far beyond its institutional incarnation, suggesting that the boundaries of the Russian world are determined by the reach of the Russian language and Russian culture. Can it be said that uh, the perceived extent of this contemporary Russian world, or Ruskimir, actually surpasses the early territorial delimitations of the former Russian Empire and the Soviet Union? At the same time, how novel do you think this idea of a Ruskimir actually is? What objectives um, does the Russian government pursue while promoting its contemporary incarnation? Well, uh, the idea of a Russian world uh, goes way back into uh, the 19th century. Uh, I think one of uh, the most prominent thinkers who advocated uh, such a thing uh, was Konstantin uh, Danielewski, who wrote a book that was uh, called Russia and Europe. And uh, there he uh, tried to enumerate uh, various civilizations in world history. And uh, he goes back uh, to ancient Egypt. Uh, he mentions the old Greeks, the Romans, and so on, uh, until, well, uh, the, the 19th century, where he talks about uh, the Western European civilizational projects. And interestingly, the Russian civilization uh, does not appear in his book. 
Why not? Uh, because uh, Konstantin Danilevsky uh, was uh, convinced uh, that uh, the um, Russian civilization was uh, the synthesis of all the civilizations. And I think if we talk about this project of Ruski Mir, uh, that wants uh, to unite uh, all the, the Russian speaking, well, populations in Russia and outside of Russia, um, we also have to consider uh, one statement that has been repeated by Putin in uh, the recent years many, many times. And he said that after 1991, after uh, the demise of the Soviet Union, Russia has become uh, the biggest divided nation uh, in the world. Uh, he lamented that millions and millions of Russians are forced uh, to live outside of the Russian Federation, although uh, in his view, uh, they uh, are, of course, always uh, and have been uh, a part of Russia. Uh, it is difficult for Putin uh, to accept the notion, let's say, of a, uh, a Russian-speaking Ukrainian or Kazakh uh, citizen. This is something uh, that is hard to conceive for him. And uh, I think we can discern several integration projects uh, that, in a way, try to, to heal uh, this uh, historical trauma. So um, the first and most current project is the, the reconstruction of what Putin calls historical Russia. So his military uh, aggression against Ukraine is uh, part of this uh, integration project of the historical Russia. And we should not forget uh, that uh, apart from the cold, uh, uh, sorry, for, apart from the hot aggression, uh, against uh, Ukraine, uh, we are witnessing also a cold aggression uh, towards Belarus. Uh, the Russian army is in Belarus and is not likely uh, to leave anytime soon. Then uh, the next uh, level would be Ruskimir, uh, where uh, well the, the Kremlin tries to rely on the integrative power of Russian culture, Russian language. Uh, but on the other hand, I think we have to see uh, that um, this cultural bond has become weaker and weaker. And I think the war in Ukraine will ultimately destroy uh, this bond of Ruskimir. Um, I think by now we can see that even uh, the Russian-speaking citizen, let's say in Estonia, have become very loyal um, citizens of the European Union. And finally, uh, we do have a, a, an integration project uh, that is also stuck in the middle uh, since uh, the 1st of January 2015. Uh, there is a Eurasian Economic Union, which is exactly modeled after the institutions of the European Union. And uh, Putin and the Kremlin basically uh, have been pushing this Eurasian Economic Union uh, towards the direction of a Euro Eurasian political union. Uh, but um, it is especially uh, Kazakhstan uh, that does not want to go any further because uh, they, of course, fear Russian dominance and uh, already uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And now um, what is going on in Ukraine, well, is, is ringing uh, all the alarm bells in, uh, in Kazakhstan. Thank you very much. And, and finally, uh, just the last question. Uh, where can people go to learn more about this topic? Yes, I think there are um, two very good uh, books uh, that uh, address uh, this topic of um, the, the diversity of uh, 
Russian, Soviet and uh, imperial statehood. Uh, so one classic book is the book The Affirmative Action Empire uh, by uh, Terry Martin, who looks uh, at uh, nations and nationalism in, so in the Soviet Union in uh, the 20s and the 30s. Uh, then uh, there is a very good book by Francine Hirsch, um, Empire of Nations. And finally, for those who read Russians, I would uh, like to point uh, to a book uh, by the journalist Olesya uh, Gerasimenko, which is called which is, of course, a pun uh, on the name of the ruling uh, government party, United Russia. So uh, the booklet uh, that was written by uh, Olesya Gerasimenko in 2013 um, can be translated as the non-united Russia. And she looks at uh, regional identities and at uh, regional projects within uh, the Russian Federation. And uh, I think here we can also uh, observe some kind of a historical Paradoxy, because the Russian Federation is a federation, uh, but under Putin, uh, the feder federalism in the Russian Federation has been reduced mainly to the name of this state. And on the other hand, uh, as we know, in the Minsk peace processes, uh, the Russians pushed hard uh, to uh, transform Ukraine into a federation with the goal, of course, uh, to control several territories within that uh, federation in order uh, to prevent um, a European integration of uh, Ukraine altogether. And here we can see that, uh, well, federalism uh, is something uh, that Russia preaches uh, to its neighbors, uh, but basically um, does not endorse on its own territory. Thank you, Ulrich. And if you don't mind, I, I would perhaps add another book that just uh, came uh, to my mind. It's um, Krista Goff, Nested Nationalism, Making and Unmaking Nations in the Soviet Caucasus from last year, which I think also traces this the evolution of, of those processes that we've discussed today um, to late socialism. So this could be perhaps a um, good addition to, to what you already mentioned. Um, thank you, Ulrich. As always, it has been a pleasure talking to you and thank you for your time. Yes, it was my pleasure. Thank you.